Hey, folks, Frank Bowl here. We got a special day for you. This is a Wednesday, I know, but we're going to redrop our podcast from August 15th with the fascinating Terrence O'Malley and Nellie Don a stitch in time. Why? Because Nellie Don is coming to a theater near you. Terrence O'Malley has totally reworked this, and it is now a musical. Nellie Don, a stitch in time. Enjoy our rebroadcast with Terrence O'Malley from August 15th, and then go to a local theater near you and see the new musical, Nellie Dawn, A Stitch in Time. Enjoy. The guy sitting right across from me is going to remind you, once we start talking to him for a while, his name is Terrence O'Malley, and uh, once we start talking to him for a while, he's going to remind you of that guy from the Dos Equis commercials, okay? The most <laughs> interesting man in the world. This guy is the most interesting man in Kansas City, and you'll see what we mean as his books just fell down. But uh, but we will, uh, we, we will just go from there, Terrence. And you are an author, documentary filmmaker, a lawyer, and you're going to do a musical on one of your uh, documentary films, and you have just you've written some really interesting books and really interesting things about the history of Kansas City mm-hmm. and some of the things that make this place what it is. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're here about the conversation about. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm born and raised in Kansas City, and so I have an innate interest in a lot of the history about Kansas City. Uh, in some ways, experienced it. And so, uh, you know, it's really been uh, my great uh, privilege to get to be able to write about these subjects and bring some of these stories to life. Yeah, and when you start talking about the books and the documentaries, and, and folks, I'll just give you a real quick synopsis here. Um, Nellie Dawn, A Stitch in Time, we will talk about her, uh, which gets very interesting when she gets kidnapped and then rescued by the mafia. Uh, yeah, that happened. Uh, shooting Back in Time, the Union Station Massacre, Black Hand Straw Man, the history of organized crime in Kansas City, Tom and Harry, the boss and the president, which is Tom Pendergast and Harry Truman, of course. He has been interviewed by Anthony Bourdain on No Reservations, yeah. <laughs> and he did the interview at um, at uh, BB's Lawnside Barbecue when he did it with, uh, with Anthony Bourdain, which is great. And when we talk about Nellie Dawn, there will be a musical as well. Why in this venue, why in this genre did you get interested to do it? Uh, Nellie Don specifically? Yeah. Uh, that, we'll talk that, about her first. Yeah, that's the first you know feature-length documentary that I did. And I had always had the Nellie Don story in my back pocket because uh, she is uh, my great aunt. Uh, technically my great great aunt, but these are large Irish Catholic families and uh We know uh, how they go. Yeah, I mean <laughs> uh her oldest sister uh was uh, almost 20 years older than her and gave birth to my grandmother when Nell was like two and a half years old. So oh <laughs> Nell was actually the aunt to my grandma, who was only two two and a half years younger than her. So they grew up like sisters. That's why I always say she's just kind of like my great aunt, you know. Right. And and Nellie Dawn, you know, everybody's going to say, well, she was a dressmaker, right? I mean, for people are going to go. Was. Or who was Nellie Dawn? Well, it was interesting when I was, uh, you know, telling people. It took me three years to do the research and make the film. And when I was telling people I'm making this uh, documentary about this lady who made dresses, it was kind of like, yawn, <laughs> like, seriously, <laughs> you know, why do you think anybody's going to care? And I said, yeah, you don't understand. 
Uh, first of all, she was the largest dressmaker in the world during the 20th century. It's uh, estimated that they, they basically made up to 75 million dresses here in Kansas City. The company started in 1916, went all the way to 1978. Even on the day that it shut its doors, it was still employing more than 900 people. So they were making dresses right up to the very last minute there. And by 1931, they were making uh, 1.5 million dresses a year. And after World War II, that, that was about 5,000 dresses a day. And then after World <laughs> War II, they were making 7,000 dresses a day. Uh, so they were huge. Right. Uh, and they're very affordable as well, right? I think the first one sold for a dollar. Yeah. Is that well, right? Well, I mean, that's Nell's story. And so we w went ahead and stuck with her story that she uh, rejected the 69 cent calico cloth Mother Hubbard style dresses <laughs> that uh, were available uh, at the dry goods stores. And she went around and sold uh, what, you know, we would call bungalow aprons, uh, mm -hmm. these very simple little frilly frocks. And uh, uh, she got rejected at, you know, several of the department or dry goods stores. They were the right. precursor to the department stores. And uh, until she came across this uh, store called Pex at 12th and Main. And they said, all right, we'll take a chance on you. And they ordered 18 dozen dresses to be done in 30 days. Well, then it was like, oh, my God, you know. Now i got to find some people to do this. Exactly. So she got her family, friends, and neighbors together and in her living room uh, over on Montgall and uh, uh, started sewing and uh, was able to make the deadline. And I think at that moment is probably when she invented uh, the assembly line manufacturing technique uh, mm -hmm. applied to dresses. And uh, she did model things off of Henry Ford, and she also modeled wow. – her uh, dress manufacturing off of the sectional technique of, of the aviation industry. So she was a great student of uh, fashion manufacturing. And I mean, I think that really she was a manufacturing genius uh, because, and you're right, I mean, there were three elements to her dresses. First of all, their design was really pleasing to the eye. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, their manufacturing was the highest standard, highest quality. And thirdly, they were affordable. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and they fit virtually they fit. everybody as well, right? Right, which exactly. Which is really important because well, if you were a small woman or a, a bigger woman or whatever, those dresses, the, the way they were made, fit you. Well, and she had techniques for doing that. She mm -hmm. uh, would always include lots of additional material inside the seams so you could let them out or take them in as need be. Uh, they always had to have a pocket. She was the first one to put removable shoulder pads into dresses. She's wow. the first one to put a label on dresses. She's the first one to put the little extra buttons uh, that, that you, you see, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of times in shirts and dresses and things like that. Uh, she, she, her, you know, she just advanced garment manufacturing by so much you yeah. know, early on. Yeah. So and then the thing for me, so she actually becomes maybe at the time the richest woman in the world. She was the second self-made woman millionaire in business in the United States. Uh, so there was a woman ahead of her, and uh, her product was Brazier's. <laughs> so, uh, but Nell was number two as, as being you know, heralded as the second self-made woman millionaire in business in the United States. And so the company, their first uh, plant uh, was at the Western Auto Building, uh -huh. Uh -huh, right there uh, wow. on Grand Street. And uh, they were there from about 1919 to uh, 1928. Then they moved to the Corrigan Building, which is at 1828 Walnut. And they were there for 20 years. And then she built the largest manufacturing plant on the face of the planet for dresses. 
at 17th in Indiana. And then Nell retired in 1956. She started the company in 1916. She sold in 1950, uh, 1956 right. to a consortium of mostly men who were her relatives. And they ran the company pretty darn well for the next 14 years. And yes. then they sold again. And the gentleman who bought it had this idea of uh, franchising Nellie Don fabrics, mm-hmm. which they were famous for. Well, Nell always thought that was a ludicrous idea because it's like, hey, we make dresses meant to be bought right off the rack yeah. at the stores. Why would you compete with yourself by offering raw garment material? So that didn't really fly very well. So that ended up you know, spelling the demise of the company. So it was in business for 62 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, she becomes one of the richest women in the world. And yes. therefore, during that time, okay, uh, through part of that time, we, we get into depression, we get into people need money. So now all of a sudden there is a huge twist in this story. Well, there is. It makes this so well, interesting. It, it, and it's a very intimate and personal story. But the fact of the matter is that uh, Nell was married to a gentleman named Paul Donnelly. That's where they got, they got the name. They inverted Donnelly and made it Nellie Don. Mm-hmm. So Nell was always perceived as Nellie Don to the outside world. That's just who she became. And they became very wealthy. Uh, during the 1920s. But uh, Paul himself uh, became, you know, slowly became a, uh, what I call a philandering dipsomaniac, uh, <laughs> frequenting the uh, the speakeasy along 12th Street. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, becoming more manic, uh, depressed, and he would come back from like a drinking binge and he and Nell would get into an argument, say, at the factory. And and this is a story that's told by uh, even more intimates in the family. Um, and he would threaten to kill himself if she got pregnant. This weird thing uh, that they hadn't been able to have any children. Now, Nell was from a big family. She was used to having big families. Right. So I think it was a little disappointing for her to not have had any children up right. to that point. And she's like in her late 30s, early 40s. And um, he is uh, exhibiting this neurotic behavior. And uh, and so that was kind of the status of things. And, uh, and so – and he was obviously not being faithful to her. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, she had this – apron called the handy dandy apron and the the genius behind it was that you could in uh, sew the entire outer seam of the apron without ever removing it from the sewing machine so she patented that herself and there was a company in st louis that knocked it off and so she hired a local lawyer a very well-known lawyer named james a reed to be her attorney. He was still at the time a sitting United States uh, senator. Senator, yes. Uh, but, and he himself is a fascinating character in the annals of Kansas City history. He's the first mayor under the Pendergast. He prosecuted the Swope murder trial. Uh, he also, uh, he defended Myrtle Bennett, the famous bridge trial yes, where the, right. when, when Myrtle Bennett accidentally shot her husband five times in the back over a, a game of bridge. Um, well, so uh, Nell hires uh, James A. Reed to uh, prosecute this uh, case in St. Louis's uh, patent infringement case, and he wins the case. And I think at that moment is when Nell became 
you know, not infatuated, but certainly developed an affinity for James A. Reed. Right. She liked him. He was right. very florid in his oratory, and he was, you know, senatorial, and he had this, you know, uh, elegant demeanor to him. Uh, and uh, they had an affair together. Uh, in fact, uh, Reed arranged for uh, Nell and Paul to move in behind him. Uh, he was at 52nd Cherry and, and arranged for Nell and Paul to move into what is now known as the Toy and Miniature Museum yes. house right uh-huh. there on Oak Street, 52nd and Oak Street. And um, it was during that time that uh, Nell got pregnant. And uh, so— you Remember, the, her husband was threatening— to kill himself to, if she if ever she got, got pregnant. pregnant. Yes. Yeah, and uh, um, also uh, Reed was still married at the time too. His wife was uh, not in great health, but nevertheless, he was still married. So the two of them, they got pregnant together while they're both married to other people. Right. And you know, talking this is 1931. So uh, the mores of the time would not have allowed for exactly. ne- for this type of news to get out. <laughs> Uh, because especially it, two such famous people, right, right. It would have been like you know major national headlines yeah. and that sort of thing. So, uh, what developed was Nell came up with this plan that she would make up a story to go over to France and adopt a baby, which she did. She could, she frequently went over to Europe to study uh, fashion design, mm-hmm. and uh, but she did go over to France, but and then she went through Ireland, and then but she came back uh, to uh, uh, through Chicago and delivered a healthy in baby Chicago. boy in Chicago at St. Luke's Hospital, and then came back to Kansas City and basically held the child up as her adopted right. child. Now, why would she do that if she was still married? You know, she could have just said, "Well, it's Paul Donnelly's child." Well, I don't. I think that she knew that her marriage to Paul Donnelly was not going to last, right. and uh, she did not want people thinking that this child was the product of Paul Donnelly, and so they made up that story, and that's the story that was sold till the end of her days. Yes, yeah. and she lived to 102, so there was a long. Right. <laughs> she had a long. People just kind of dropped left. it. It was just kind <laughs> of something that wasn't really spoken a lot about. Right. But uh, I mean, you can definitely see James A. Reed in the progeny. Of uh, yes. uh, you know that have come since so uh, so and then interestingly enough just to wrap that up so well so the baby is born in September of 1931 well it was three months later when you know her life changed due to a criminal event yeah right I guess her and her chauffeur were I guess they were coming out of the house uh, oh but, no no they're returning to the house yes, right uh-huh. and there were two guys there in the driveway with a car it looked like the car was broken down or something that's of that right. nature. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> it was well. You know what's interesting? A bizarre forty-eight hours after yeah, that, they, right? It really was because they had that the car parked there. And if you go to where the Toy and Miniature Museum is, the driveway is exactly the same. It hasn't changed a bit, you know, from the photographs back in the day. But yes, there was a car block, and they were acting like their car was broken down. And uh, her uh, young uh, African-American chauffeur, George Blair, sounded the horn, and they approached the car and said, hey, can you help us? Our car's broken. And he said, hey, you got to get that car out of the way. And then next thing you know, they rushed the car. Two guys jumped in the front seat with uh, George and started beating him uh, and pistol whipping him and things like that. And then a guy jumped into the back seat with Nell. 
and uh, uh, they took off, headed south on Oak. They cut over on Westover, and they drove all the way out into the country to 75th and Mission, uh, where they exchanged cars. <laughs> yeah, the roads were still uh, gravel at that time and dirt. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. And then they took them, uh, her up to an abandoned farmhouse in Wyandotte County, uh, up by where the racetrack is now. But when they were first uh, abducting the, uh, the two of them, uh, the guys in the front say Nell was putting up a heck of a fight. Mm-hmm. She was screaming and yelling and, you know, trying to get somebody's attention. And uh, uh, the guys in the front seat said, you know, shut her up, hit her, beat her, choke her, do whatever you got to do. So the guy in the back seat just grabbed her neck and started squeezing on her neck and started suffocating her. And so it was at that moment she knew she had to give up. Right. So she was basically complied with them from that point, and they, and they took him to this farmhouse, and she had to write ransom notes under flashlight. Right. And now, now all of a sudden, she's missing. James A. Reed is very concerned. I'm sure her husband was as well, but James A. Reed is very concerned about where the woman who's had his child that is. His, his right? only child. His too. only child. He is. never had a child, and he is 26 years older than Nell. Yeah. Yeah. And so he goes and he enlists a little help. He does. It's interesting. He's trying the famous Ha Ha Tonka lawsuit down in Jefferson City, which is about the condemnation of the lands. And one of the major witnesses in that was uh, Gutzen Borglum, who was the sculptor of Mount Rushmore. Oh, my God. And and he did a beautiful bust of James A. Reed. It's still in the family. But uh, so anyway, Reed hears word comes to him that Nellie Don's been kidnapped. So he goes rushing out of the courtroom. Well, there were reporters there covering that. Uh, so when Reed got back to the Toy Miniature Museum house, it was swarming with police and reporters, and he realizes he's made a mistake uh, because he's drawn this attention. Right. So he holds a news conference live on the air on the radio, uh, and uh, uh, and I think it, WDAF is is what comes to mind for yes, me. Yes, right. Uh, was, back in those days. Yeah, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, anyway, because Nell and George Blair, her chauffeur, could hear the press conference with uh, Reed. And uh, he said he beseeched the kidnappers to please not hurt her, that it was his responsibility that this, you know, that the information about the kidnapping got out. But then he went on to threaten them that if they hurt her, harmed one hair on her head, that he would track them down to the ends of the earth and make sure that they got the most severe penalty under the law, Mm -hmm. which at the time was death by hanging for kidnapping in Missouri. Right. And then he went in after the news conference was concluded. He went to a back room, picked up the phone, and called Johnny Lazia, <laughs> who was uh, one of Pendergast's, uh, Tom Pendergast's. Uh, uh, he, he was the he was the face uh, for Tom Pendergast and what well, they were he, trying he, to do, right? I would say he was the face of what was the burgeoning of organized crime, crime in, in Kansas Casey. City. Okay. Uh, Johnny Lazia came to the fore because in 1928, uh, in a municipal election, uh, he and his henchmen uh, kidnapped uh, four Pendergast poll workers and put guns to their head and sent a note to Boss Tom saying, look, we're going to kill these guys if you don't give us political control. Oh, uh, They wanted what's called home rule right. over the North End Italian sector of Kansas City at that time. And, uh, uh, you know, Pendergast first said, well, Hey, instead of, uh, you know, uh, why don't we do this? Why don't you have a club, a, a political club, and we'll all have a political club, and Lazia would not accept that deal. Hmm. And so Pendergast could not go to war with Lazia. 
And so he said he acquiesced at that point. Well, at that point, then Lazia and Tom Pendergast became very close associates, and they worked very closely together on, <laughs> you know, th- how things worked in Kansas City. <laughs> back in those days. Yeah, yeah. back in the day, yeah. Sure. I mean, Tom wasn't a gangster. He was a political influencer, and he was a businessman. And Lazia was a businessman. Um, it's just that his business you know, transcended the legal and went into the illegal realm of things. And because of this is still during Prohibition. Yeah, right. So they're still, they're making booze and beer and selling and having speakeasies and they have pro- houses of prostitution and yeah. they, you know, the, the whole thing, it. They, yeah. they, they had the whole the whole deal running at that time, which is where they made money. Yeah. And I, I think what people forget too is everybody talks about New York and Chicago during those days, you know, we've yeah. seen The Godfather and whatever, but you see that. I, I don't. Th- I think people lose sight of how big Kansas City was in the mafia. Well, I think Kansas City has a disproportionate role in the national syndicate for a city of its size, and I think the reason is is because during the Pendergast era, uh, our organized our our criminal families were able to gel in such a way that they couldn't in most other cities because Pendergast allowed all kinds of what you might consider soft crime to, you know, to yeah, proliferate. just look the other way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, they purposely paid the police officers very poorly. I mean, it was like, I think, oh, $1,300 a year. And uh, they had to buy their own blackjack, their own billy club, their, their own mm-hmm. uh, service revolver. They had to buy their own uniforms. So they needed uh, money. They needed money. And so the whole idea is pay them very poorly so that they'll take bribes from the sin businesses mm-hmm. and just look the other way. And that worked very well for many years. And then it came to light that 10 percent of uh, Kansas City's police force during the 1930s uh, were uh, ex-cons, convicted felons, mm-hmm. uh, serving as police officers on the police force. So uh, it was a very corrupt uh, situation here in Kansas City. Uh, and of course, though, you know, there's a pro and a con to all of it, right? Absolutely. And, and yes. the pro was that, you know, all these clubs, these bars, these speakeasies, uh, and it's amazing, especially if you look after Prohibition. I mean, you'll have two full pages in the newspapers of one club after another advertised, you know, live music, live music. So just literally many hundreds of musicians flocked to Kansas City Mm -hmm. from Arkansas and Oklahoma and all over the region, Texas. They came from everywhere uh, because there were jobs in Kansas City, steady paying gig jobs for musicians. And so that's how we became a cradle of jazz. And I think that Tom Pendergast, he, Tom Pendergast, he, he, you know, in, by the 1930s, he was a 60-year-old man, and so he wasn't out frequenting the speakeasies. Right. He was just taking a cut <laughs> off of— He was sitting at home counting his money. That's basically <laughs> right. It was delivered to him at 1908 yeah. Main Street. Okay, so um, Tom Pen—I'm sorry, James A. Reed goes to Tom Pendergast and says— Get you know, get my uh, you know, get get my get Nellie Don back. Yeah. Could you know anybody and get her back? I'm sure the first thing he said was, "You didn't take her, did you? You guys didn't take her, did you? You didn't kidnap." And then they went no. And so he he uh, he hires these guys or not hires them, but says threatens them. He threatens them. Get my get my wife or get my. The mother of my child back. Well, since I mean, uh, he's not know, married to her at this get, point. Get yeah. Mrs. Donnelly back. Get Mrs. Donnelly back. I mean, back. you're right. right. You know, Lazia said, hey, Senator, we didn't have anything to do with right. this. He said, I know, but you know how to get her back. Yeah. And I'm giving you 24 hours to do so, or else I'm going to buy a half an hour of national radio time and expose 
your syndicate activities here in Kansas City. And that's the last thing that a mobster needs is yes, that exactly. type. And also, you got to appreciate who James A. Reed was. He was a real firebrand. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you, if, if this guy was coming after you, you got problems because he didn't let it go. And he knew how, and he was a good lawyer, great lawyer, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, very powerful. In his, he, in fact, he just came uh, second to um, Al Smith, Tammany Hall's oh, candidate, who ran yes. against Herbert Hoover and mm-hmm. lost. But uh, Reed uh, was at that convention and darn near got the presidential nomination. nomination. So he was he was a national figure. He's on the cover of Time magazine and very well known. And so I'm sure that. That scared not only Johnny Lazia and company, but I'm sure that that also had an effect on the kidnappers themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the amazing thing about the kidnappers are no, they were from South Africa. Well, well, they weren't. They, <laughs> no, what happened was or they fled to South. Yeah, one, that's what they, they ended up in South Africa. They ended somehow, up in yeah. South Africa. So <laughs> what happened was, so, and they thought it was far enough away. <laughs> well, Lazia gets the call, and so he, you know, he basically, you know, he gets threatened with this. And you have to understand, Lazia actually contributed to the solution of, se- of of at least a couple, if not several, big crimes in Kansas City because he went around and, and collected the money for the Mary McElroy kidnapping as well. That was the city manager's daughter. She was kidnapped. Right. Um, but uh, so uh, what happened was you had like 25 carloads of gangsters out on the street of Kansas City searching for Nellie Don, and through some really inventive investigative technique, they found out where she was, uh, and they broke into the farmhouse at about three o'clock in the morning and uh, uh, and they basically dispatched the kidnappers. And when they got into the room where the, Nell and uh, the chauffeur were being held, Nell thought that they were being taken for a ride, that they were going to be taken and shot. Well, what she said, and this was at trial, she said that these men came into the room and uh, they said, uh, get up, come on, we're leaving. And at that time, she thought, okay, I'm, uh, they're going to execute us. And uh, But she said they took us out to these uh, beautiful, bright, shiny new cars. <laughs> I can't tell. I don't know if they were Cadillacs or Buicks, but they were really nice cars. And uh, uh, the newspaper reports that as Johnny Lassie and his gang were heading back east into Kansas City from Kansas City, Kansas, there was a, a bunch of uh, cop cars heading west out to <laughs> Too where. late. Yeah, so they dropped Nell and the chauffeur off at an all-night uh, diner in Kansas City, Kansas, called the cops and said, you'll find her here. And so Lazia then came back at Reed, uh, I mean, excuse me, Reed came back at Lazia and said, all right, who were these guys? And Lazia said, hey, nah, that wasn't the deal. The deal was, we get her back. You got to figure out who it was. And Lazia knew who it was. Yeah. Uh, but yes, they eventually tracked the lead kidnapper. He got on a boat called the City of New York, and he took it all the way down to South Africa and he was down in South Africa, and he went to the local consulate there uh, looking for maybe some work to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, back in the day, that's when, like, true crime magazines uh, and, you know, and all these different names for all these different crime magazines, kind of the equivalent of America's Most Wanted today. Mm-hmm. And they recognized the guy because they, they, they kind of figured out who it was, so they published the guy's picture so that you know, they got hold of the Kansas City Police Department. And said, "Hey, we got we got this guy down here. We think he's your guy." And so, two Kansas City police detectives got on a boat and went all the way to South Africa to grab You're not this climbing guy. on a seven forty seven. No, and going to Cape Town. No, I mean that's what a, probably a, at least a two week trip. You know, at least. oh, they probably loved it. 
I, yeah, I know, I know. You know, <laughs> you're having a great time. Yeah, because all I have to do is go grab this That's guy, right. and come on back. Uh, but uh, let's see, three people were prosecuted. Two of them got life sentences, and uh, one of them got 35 years. Okay. So it was but they very didn't serious. hang them. No, they didn't hang them. Uh, okay. Nell didn't want them to be hanged either. You okay. know, um, she. Yeah, she, she, you know, she she had a very uh, soft heart in that. Wow, way. Mm-hmm. wow, that was great. Well, that's Nellie Don, and now you're going to tell me, <laughs> folks, after that story you just heard, uh, this is going to be a musical. Okay, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you, it is a musical. So how yeah. it is a musical? Yeah. It will be released, I think. Well, well, it's a musical movie. We released. Uh, we right. we did do the play down at Crown Center Musical Theater Heritage uh, in uh, March of 2019. Okay. And uh, we opened on Thursday, and it was sold out by Tuesday. So a lot of people got to see that play, uh, uh, a musicalized version of this story. Uh, but uh, yes, we spent uh, last year in principal photography shooting uh, Nellie Don, the musical movie here in right. Kansas City. Uh, uh, we had uh, Heather Laird was our casting director, and uh, I think she had 215 applications wow. of people who wanted to be in the film. Sure. Uh, and then she winnowed that down to about 115, and then uh, and then we actually auditioned 85 Kansas Cityans for it. And so it's a total Kansas City film. Uh, all of the actors and actresses, all the performers are Kansas City, all the extras are Kansas City, all the uh, crew is Kansas City. Uh, the uh, composer, uh, Daniel Doss, uh, my collaborator, uh, he's from Kansas City, so it's a great yeah. telling. And of you a, wrote the lyrics? Uh, I did. I wrote the what they call the, uh, in the musical, you call it uh, the book. I wrote the book and the lyrics, and then okay. Daniel helped with the lyrics and uh, composed the music, and then we had a different arranger. Wow. Um, and then, um, yeah, for the uh, movie, I'm the director of the movie, and I wrote the screenplay, and right. uh, I'm also the editor of the movie as well. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, since this is sort of evergreen, it will be released in September of yeah. 2023. That's what I'm shooting so, for. Yeah, right. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is just uh, mm-hmm. just just incredible. And the songs are beautiful, and the performances are great. Uh, and so I hope people just you know take it for what it is. It's just a real fun, fun. You know, I was going to say ride. It's because you know nothing. Uh, uh, Nellie Don didn't die during no. the kidnapping or, or any anything of that nature. Then shortly after, well, let me give you the coda real quick. Okay, go ahead. So yeah. what, what happened was uh, yes, so this is, after this is she yeah, gets this, re- yes, this, this is, is December right. 1931 when the kidnapping. So she, she comes, she gets back home. She's of course, you know, elated to get to see her baby again. And then in 19 in October 1932, Reed's first wife dies. In November of 1932, Nell divorces. Paul Donnelly, her first husband, gives mm-hmm. him a million dollars and says, go away. And he financed the acting career of a young ingenue in Broadway. Uh, and then in December of 1933, Reed and Nell held a uh, a holiday party. And there was a federal judge there and asked everyone to rise and bear witness. And they got married right there on the spot. Wow. And then so after they were married, I always tell people the, the baby was David Reed, who was grew up to be a wonderful man. And uh, uh, I always say David Reed has the distinction of having been adopted by both his natural parents. You know, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. <laughs> 
And then Nell went on <laughs> to a fabulous to run that company. Right. Uh, and, I mean, she basically provided most of the uh, women in service uniforms and the Rosie the Riveter type of work clothes right. for women during right. World War. She was honored a couple of times, uh, got the Army uh, Navy E for Excellence Award a couple of times. That's the highest civilian award you could get. And, uh, you know, uh, Look Magazine sent – um, sent Stanley Kubrick to do a, a photo shoot on her, and oh, Robert Altman directed one of her uh, uh, industrial films, and NBC <laughs> Radio dramatized her life in 1948 in The Golden Needle, and Dorothy McGuire played Nellie Don. Oh, my so, God. So, so it's not like, you know, I found this, you know, you know, pearl, you know, that nobody knew. I mean, Nell was big in her day, you know. It's just that I knew that her story was being lost to time, and so I basically revived it again. Yeah, and that's why you're here. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, for, for and this is so interesting, what we're doing today with you, with uh, the Nellie Dawn thing, but you have there's three or four more other books here sure, sure. and documentary films that you've done. We're going to have to have you in periodically, but let's, you know, to just maybe every few months or something, bring you in and yeah. we'll do another one. But sure. let's, let's do the, we'll do the Reader's Digest version of some of the other ones. Shooting Back in Time, the Union Station Massacre. Yeah, so, so the way I got onto that was um, the 75th anniversary of the massacre was coming up in 2008. Right. And I was researching my book and film, uh, Black Hand Strawman, the History of Organized Crime in Kansas City. And, you know, frankly, I didn't know that I was going to include the Union Station in my film, Black Hand Strawman, until right. I started researching it and realized that Johnny Lazia was responsible for supplying the firearms uh, to the bad guys. And then also he's the one who hooked up Vern Miller and, and Pretty Boy Floyd the night before the massacre. Right. And so I'm like, oh, well, God, this is clearly organized crime. You know, it, mm-hmm. I mean, it was rogue criminals perpetrating the act, but it was the nexus with organized crime that, you know, facilitated it. Yeah, it all worked. It all started to work together who they were. And, of course, you know, several police officers died in the uh, yeah, it's, in it's, the interim of that. And, and the aftermath of that was the FBI. Yeah. Oh, I mean, really, the FBI, the modern FBI, as we, as we would think about it today, really was born that moment. Yeah, because J. Edgar it, Hoover. Yeah, it gave him the ammunition he needed to go before Congress to uh, enlarge the powers that – that his agents had at that time, his agents had very limited jurisdiction mm-hmm. enforcing prohibition laws and enforcing laws on you know Indian uh, reservations, uh, just very limited, and uh, uh, so the, the basically expanded the FBI into the police force that we know it today. Right. But I mean, to this day, the FBI still denies that it was friendly fire that ignited the shootout yeah. there at Union Station, but it clearly was, and it was documented back in the day, but, you know, uh, Hoover just would not hear of it and just continued to basically, you know, gloss over that and just, you know, say, no, it was, and, and, and in a way, he's right. I mean, yeah, it was friendly fire that blew off Frank Nash's head, the criminal that they were escorting back to right. uh, Leavenworth, but also killed uh, FBI agent uh, Caffrey. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I think uh, he was the second, maybe the first, but I think he was the second uh, bureau agent killed uh, while in service uh, for the FBI. So his was a major, just a really a demarcation for the FBI. Yeah. But really quickly about the film, it's a 40-minute film. 
and uh, really, I want to redo the film. We need to redo that film. I've done all of the research, and I know exactly, you know, to the extent that people can know exactly what happened. But the 24 hours leading up to mm-hmm. the massacre are fascinating because you got Pretty Boy Floyd who uh, has kidnapped a, uh, a Missouri sheriff uh, from uh, uh, you know, a small town in uh, Bolivar, Missouri. And he and uh, his cohort are his little uh, drunk friend, uh, Adam Ricchetti. They're making their way to Kansas City. And meanwhile, they've grabbed Frank Nash down in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And so his buddy, Vern Miller, gets pulled off the golf course here. And I've always thought golf and organized crime are an interesting <laughs> Combo. Parallel, yeah, they are. There's just so much about. I mean, they, they go to the Nick Savella was arrested on a golf course, right. uh, and Vern Miller had to get pulled off a golf course. Uh, Wolf Ryman was executed by uh, the mafia, and he was the golf pro at Hillcrest. You know, so just all these connections with golf. Uh, but uh, anyway, so what I'd like to do, the 100th anniversary is going to come up in uh, in 2033. And so uh, I'd really like to redo that film uh, using today's production. Oh, gosh, yes. It would yeah, be you amazing. Do, yeah, right. I we mean, it'd be a that. real movie. It it really should be a real movie. Yeah. It was a movie in the 1970s. It was terrible. Bo Hopkins, I think, played Pretty Boy Floyd, and you couldn't find a guy who looked less like Pretty Boy Floyd, you know. So, (laughs) uh, but yeah, it needs to be redone. And then, so uh, I also came out uh, in 2008 with Black Hand Straw Man, the History of Organized Crime in Kansas City. And that really is an anthology of crime in Kansas City. And then I came out with a book a couple of years later, simply because it just took me that long to write this book. I mean, if you look at this book, there is no other mafia book like this because it's really a pastiche of uh, artifacts, mementos, graphics, uh, photographs, uh, exhibits, uh, evidence, uh, and of course, you know, lots and lots of uh, pictures of uh, the gangsters in Kansas City throughout time. So uh, it's unique. It's a history book. Yeah. And it's so, unique yeah. in that way, in the sense that most mafia books are written in a very, you know, narrative form. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a very graphical form, if you will. Yeah. yeah okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's amazing. And then you wrote in 2012, I think, and I think you did a documentary on this as well as Tom and Harry. It's by Tom. Pendergast, the boss mm-hmm. and the president of the United States, Harry Truman, yeah, and how he actually helped propel their their relationship Harry Truman that mm-hmm. way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, a lot of when biographers come to Kansas City and they tell the story of Harry Truman, they don't have a lot of time to spend on the Pendergast machine. They'll usually just make some type of you know passing reference that Harry was associated with this you know, corrupt, sinister yeah. political organization, which he was. Uh, but <laughs> you have to understand, well, why was he? Why was a guy like Harry Truman engaged with this, this element of mm-hmm. society, right? And uh, so this film really is, I think, the uh, the quintessential uh, telling of the Pendergast machine because I go right back to its very beginnings uh, with big Jim Pendergast, Tom's oldest brother, who started opened a saloon called the Climax uh, in the West Bottoms. And the way he got his name was uh, that he bet on a racehorse named Climax, and he won enough uh, winnings to buy this saloon. And so he called it the Climax. Well, wow, that's amazing. It sounds like the Rooney family in Pittsburgh where Art Sr. 
was at the racetrack, won enough money, and he bought the Pittsburgh Steelers. Is that right? So instead of buying a, a bar or a place like that, he bought the Pittsburgh Steelers Well, he probably Steelers won more instead. than Jim Pendergast <laughs> yeah. did then. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure he did. Yeah, well, those are those are great stories. But it, So Big Jim Pendergast was uh, really the guy who started the Pendergast machine. And, you know, I compared the two brothers. Uh, Big Jim Pendergast was an upstanding guy. Uh, he never engaged in the criminality that his brother did later on. Uh, But, uh, you know, he was very soft on issues like, uh, you know, illegal uh, alcohol distribution and consumption and gambling. You know, he just didn't really care. And frankly, prostitution. It was just like, you know, this is just, listen, this is just something people are going to do. It's in our nature. So why are we fighting it? You know, let's just learn to figure out to live with it. And so, but otherwise he advanced a lot of positive things. And the, probably the biggest thing that he is known for, there's quite a few things, but he did not stand in the way of the relocation of the rail depot from the West Bottoms to where Union Station is today. There was a big vote on that, and I think it was the vote was in uh, 1910 or 1911 because uh, construction, I think, started in 1912. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so uh, everybody thought that Big Jim Pendergast would oppose this because it would basically decimate his political district. It, you know, his district was West Bonds. A lot of people used to live there because mm-hmm. that's where the industrial sector of Kansas City was. And so he didn't stand in the way. In fact, he got behind the relocation of the rail depot. And so the city fathers were so grateful for that, they actually erected a statue to uh, Jim Pendergast uh, some years later. And I tell people, well, there's, there's a statue to Jim Pendergast, but there are a lot of monuments to Tom Pendergast. <laughs> and those monuments would be like the Jackson County Courthouse, the uh, Kansas City Municipal Building, the Police sure. Department, uh, the uh, uh, Municipal Auditorium. Uh, they paved the uh, the airport, the downtown airport, and of course they paved that boondoggle uh, Brush Creek. Yeah, right. Uh, and many, many, many other things. Yeah. In fact, Tom, I think I, I was telling you the other day that Tom was one of the first ones, if not the first one, to bring the revolving drum trucks of cement to the construction site and pour the cement right there. So it was very high quality cement. So Tom delivered a lot to yeah, Kansas right. City, yeah. uh, but he also uh, had a gambling addiction, uh, basically betting on the ponies. He actually had a race wire installed in his office, and then he would listen to the call of the races over the telephone. And he continued to need more and more and more cash. Mm-hmm. And so he started to rely a lot more and more on the cut from the mob uh, from the various sin businesses, and then he needed to get cuts from the salaries of all the municipal employees. Uh, and then he took silent partnership in about 33 companies. Uh, and so he was getting paid, you know, by them. And sure. so uh, it was this kind of constant need for cash because he was, he, he was, and he was considered one of the biggest suckers in <laughs> on the east coast they knew who he was because he bet these large sums of money and he lost so much of the time yeah uh but you know he won sometimes but you know generally he, he he really lost a lot of money uh but you know the story of tom pendergast is is one of you know luck and incredible political insight because he just knew how to assess a situation harry truman always said that tom uh, Pendergast had the greatest political acumen 
of anybody he had ever met before. He he could take a a, a scenario and issue and go you know eight to ten steps beyond where you know where, where it was mm-hmm. going to go and predict how it was going to turn out. Uh, but Tom also was not above cheating. Uh, uh, Harry Truman was elected first time to the United States Senate. And I know a lot of people around here don't want to hear it, but it's too bad uh, because he was. He was elected with somewhere between probably 60 and 75,000 ghost votes uh, in the 1934 uh, general election. And that's why when he got to Congress, he was senator non grata because everybody just considered him to be a stooge of this corrupt political machine. So, yeah, the boss in Kansas City. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, you know, Pendergast did continue to exert some influence uh, over Harry Truman while he was in uh, the Senate. Uh, and Harry got up on the Senate floor one time and made one of the most ridiculous speeches of his entire career because at, by, after the 1936 election, the largest federal prosecution of vote fraud uh, took place, and that was they uh, indicted 287 people here in Kansas City for vote fraud, mm-hmm. and they prosecuted successfully 259 people oh, wow. yeah, for vote fraud. And so Harry Truman stood up on the United States Senate floor and railed against the prosecutor, Maurice Milligan. Uh, and these characters from the past are just – they're just something, you know, almost uh, – Made Dick, up. Dickensian or something. But uh, so Harry Truman got up on the Senate floor and he said that a Democrat in Jackson County could no more get a fair trial – than a Trotsky follower in Soviet Russia or a Jew in Nazi Germany. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that speech was not well received. And uh, uh, Harry kind of thought that his career was over Mm -hmm. at that moment, but he was able to ride the storm, uh, and I think he kind of shut up after that. He said, Harry, come on. You know, they got the, the, these people dead to rights on this voter fraud thing. Yeah, and then what's interesting is that the man uh, who – uh, prosecuted these guys, ran against uh, Harry Truman. And, and really, that's kind of a, a lot of what my film is all about is the 1940 election mm-hmm. of Harry Truman. Because, you know, we all know that Harry won the presidential victory, you know, the famous picture of him holding up uh, Dewey defeats Dewey Truman, defeats right? Truman, yeah. But it was 1940, really, that he was hanging on for his dear political life because at that time, the governor of Missouri could only serve for four years. So the Pendergast-backed governor of Missouri was now opposing Truman in the 1940 election. And Maurice Milligan, the guy that had put Pendergast behind bars, was opposing Truman in the 1940 senatorial mm-hmm. election. And Maurice Milligan got into the race because he uh, thought that uh, the governor was taking too much credit for prosecuting Pendergast. <laughs> And I mean, and, and I'm sure Pendergast saw what was going on and he could read this situation because six years earlier in 1934, Truman had run against Maurice Milligan's brother, Tuck Milligan, who was a congressman. And he got into the race late. And there was a, another congressman from St. Louis that was supposed to be the winner. And this guy named Cochran in St. Louis, he said, all I need is 120,000 votes out of St. Louis and I'm going to beat Harry Truman. 
So Pendergast heard that said, fine. And he delivered 125,000 votes out of Kansas City. <laughs> and, more, and Tuck Milligan also split the anti-Pendergast vote. Right. So in 1934, you had an anti-Pendergast vote. And in 1940, you had an anti-Pendergast vote. And so Harry in 1940 squeaked by with a 1% plurality. Oh, wow. He just barely squeaked by uh, out of all the votes cast. Uh, and, you know, the wags of the day said... Every day Harry Truman got up, he should have gotten on his knees and said a little prayer for the Milligan brothers because they both <laughs> siphoned votes away from who should have been right. the, the major contender and, you know, basically gave Harry the victory. But also Harry in 1934 had, you know, the benefit of the Pendergast machine financing his yeah. uh, campaign yeah. and then also delivering, you know, 70, 75,000 fraudulent votes. Yeah, right. And mm -hmm. then the rest is history. And who knows the difference of what would have happened would whoever stepped in for Roosevelt at the time, would he have dropped the bomb on yeah. Japan or right. whatever? Or maybe we don't even manufacture the bomb at that time. Right, you know? right. I was just or watching whatever. the trailer for the film Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer, And uh, yes. they referenced Truman, said Truman needs to know this, you know. Yes. And, uh, I mean, really, uh, to put such an ordinary man into such oh. extraordinary circumstances, just, you know, just it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah really the buck is. stops here. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, we're going to wrap this up okay. today. Okay, where we are, but we're going to have you back if you'd be so kind to come back and sure. and get this history of Kansas City down and have it evergreen, have it on a platform like this as well as yeah. you know doing the movies and the books and, and everything else. I think that would be just terrific if you sure. if you do that for us. That'd be great. Absolutely, great. My pleasure, Terrence. You are the most interesting man <laughs> in Kansas City. <laughs> I, I really appreciate this. Yeah. I, I really do. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, be glad to come back. I, there's real. There's a really interesting story about the Anthony Bourdain. Yes, he, his, we will his, do that. His producers called me and I didn't know who he was, and so. <laughs> I said, just meet me over. They wanted the connection between the mafia and barbecue. And I said, yeah, you'd have an easier time if you went Italian, you know. And they said, well, no, it's got to be barbecue because they were doing the theme. I said, all right, meet me over at BB's Lawnside Barbecue. Well, I forgot to tell Lindsay Shannon about it, the guy that owns he the place. He owns it. Yeah, Lindsay does so, and has. So yeah. all of a sudden, Anthony Bourdain shows up at his restaurant and starts setting up with his crew. And, and I just forgot. And, I used to be the piano player going, over there. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, Lindsay's like. Terrence, what is going on? I said, um, I'm sorry, I forgot to call you about this. <laughs> and uh, so, but he was great about it. Uh, so anyway, that's how that all went down. Yeah, yeah. You are a Kansas City, which is great. And you're one of the reasons there's just something about, about Kansas, Kansas City. City. <laughs> you got it. Thank you, my friend. We're going to see you uh, again okay. shortly. All right.